0: Our guest tonight, during the first hour of the program, indeed into the second hour, uh, is John Berendt. You recognize the name instantly, I'm sure. He is, of course, the author of one of the best-selling books in the history of modern American publishing, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And he's found another city equally worthy of his labors, equally interesting in terms of the people, some decadent, some heroic, uh, many eccentric, uh, to be found in Venice, just as they were found in Savannah. Uh, this is your second book, yes. and are you going to go on to yet another interesting city with eccentric people? Well, I
1: hope to do another book. Whether it's going to be another city, I don't know. I'm just looking for a topic that will will entice me and involve me for a few years. I mean, that's why I got into books in the first place. I had been a magazine yeah. editor and writer, and I felt that I was only skimming the surface of things. And, I wanted to wallow in something and wrote a book, and that happened to be Midnight. This, this second one, uh, The City of Falling Angels, is, well, about nine years' worth of involvement in Venice, so I really came to know the place. And
0: what the drew you to Venice? Was it partly its literary presence?
1: I'll tell you what it was. After I, I wrote Midnight, which was about Savannah, Georgia, I wanted to write another book and looked into several possible stories. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't getting anywhere. I found things that didn't pan out. So I stood back and I said, all right, what were the factors that made the first book work? One was the place, the magnificent Savannah. The other were the characters. So I thought, okay, what place has the magic of Savannah but is very different? And immediately I thought of Venice because I knew Venice. I'd been there a dozen times or more. And so I simply went there. I went there in the in February 1996 just to scout around, and I knew some Venetians, and I thought I'd just start poking, looking for a story, because this was certainly a, man- a fantastic setting. And it was in the middle of the winter when I knew there weren't going to be a lot of tourists there, so I wouldn't have all that overlay of tourism. Well, as luck would have it, I was, arrived in Venice for on this trip three days after the Venetia Opera House burned to the ground, and things started to happen.
0: And indeed, the uh, the theme that runs through the book is who done it? Who burned down the Venetian?
1: That was one. And why? And and who's going to rebuild it also? Uh, and all of the, the, the things that the typify uh, Venice and Venetian life come into play in the investigation of the causes of the fire. First, they thought it was negligence compounded mm-hmm. by an accident, uh, and then they realized it was arson.
0: Your guides to a very complex social life and to the at least recent history. Venice uh, are a couple, the Lauritsons, right. and he uh, originally came from Oak Park That's right. in this neighborhood.
1: That's right. He was a, a Chicagoan who has lived in Europe since college, and he and his wife, who is English, have lived in Venice for over 30 years, and uh, they have a son who is actually Venetian because he, sure. he's first language, uh, first and second language, and, you know, Italian and English.
0: And they play uh, They play Virgil to your Dante, so to speak. They guide you through the layers of Venetian life.
1: Yes. Um, They're also a very uh, charming and amusing couple. Peter Mm -hmm. Lauritsen is a a historian, a cultural historian, and very uh, well-versed in all matters uh, Venetian. And uh, Rose Lauritsen is a charming English lady with a marvelous sense of humor, sort of a dotty way about a mind you see and they knew all the ins and outs they knew all the secrets and um, they told me you know, for instance you um, you you if you live in Venice and you go to the same restaurants over and over they begin to recognize you as a Venetian or as someone who lives in Venice and you get a 30 to 40 percent discount now I, and Rose told me that the tourists would be furious if they realized this but that's the case I mean Venice is so expensive that uh, you wonder how anyone can afford to live there
0: you uh, you've just caused me to free associate in a direction you wouldn't have expected but only last night we had uh, tony uh what's his name bourdain uh the chef who's written a number of books uh about dining around the world and so on and um we were which leads me to ask you what uh, is, he doesn't write anything about venetian food though he's been touring the world and uh, sampling restaurants all over the world for his television program uh, is there a Venetian cuisine?
1: Yes, and it's mostly seafood. That makes uh, sense. And uh, But it's also not uh, the most popular of the, of the Italian cuisines. Mm-hmm. And I would say Venice is really not known for its food. I mean, you can get marvelous food. There are wonderful restaurants. But for some reason, the, the Bologna is... Uh, you know, thought of as a, as a center of food. and and I, and I think that in Venice, there are other things that are yeah. attractive and appealing.
0: One thing that sticks in my mind about the modern history of Venice is that it produced uh, the Pope, a few popes back, namely John the twenty third was right. the patriarch, didn't they call him right. of Venice he was, he was but he was elevated to the papacy.
1: that's right. He was the the uh, patriarch of of the Benito. yeah, yeah. Uh, St. Mark's Cathedral, uh, th- no, the, the Basilica of St. Mark's was yes. Yeah.
0: There is an expatriate American family who are very prominent in Venetian life, though not really fully members of Venetian society, who've been there merely for four generations.
1: Well, yes. Uh, The Curtises of Boston uh, moved... They're still the
0: Curtises of Boston rather than the Curtises of Venice.
1: Uh, They moved uh, old Daniel uh, Curtis. Well, he wasn't old at the time. In 1885, Daniel Curtis uh, moved to Venice uh, and bought... The uh, Palazzo um, Barbaro, and he he and his wife, and they had a, gr- a son who was in, in his twenties at the time, and uh, among the guests who came to visit them at the Palazzo Barbaro were Henry James, Edith Wharton, uh, John Singer Sargent, uh, Robert Browning, a variety of of really top-notch cultural figures mm-hmm. in the uh, in ni- late the, uh, 19th century, and uh, so. The Palazzo Barbaro became uh, the most important American outpost, cultural outpost, in Italy, in all of Italy.
0: It was Uh, in a room of the Palazzo Barbaro, hosted by the Curtises, that Henry James wrote some portion of his novella, The Aspirin Papers. Yes.
1: It was a dining room, and he sat at a desk, and there was a tiepolo, a copy of a tiepolo on the ceiling. And he yes he completed the, his his uh, the aspirin papers which is a marvelous uh, short novel and it's set in an Italian villa. In fact, it was, no, well, it was set in actually in Venice.
0: It's, he sets it in Venice, <laughs> though it's based upon something he encountered
1: in Florence. Right. I think right. he had heard Henry James had been told that the ancient mistress of uh, Byron was living yeah. still alive and living in Florence, and uh, some specialist in Byron and Shelley uh came to florence heard that she was still alive and wanted to get hold of her letters her love letters from lord byron and uh so james heard this and made up a story and he put it not in florence but in venice and he called it the aspirin papers and uh instead of byron being the um the the long dead poet it was uh Henry Aspern, a fictional poet, and his mistress was still alive in Venice in the short story or in the novella, and her papers are the subject of the uh, the story. And uh, a boss, she's a very
0: old lady living with her her niece and
1: niece, niece, and uh, a specialist in the poetry of Henry Aspern comes to Venice and wants to get his hands on the paper.
0: James never gives him a name.
1: That's right. He's just uh, he's a, yes, the narrator. He's the
0: first-person narrator.
1: Yeah, and he has his sights on the on the. Papers and so he, under false pretenses, he rents a room in the little broken-down palace that this old lady and her niece live in, and he says he wants he he loves flowers. He wants to make <clears throat> their weed-choked garden bloom again, and he does and all of that, but he really wants to get his hands on the papers. And uh, well, to make a long story short, the old lady dies in her 90s, whatever. So he says to the, uh, to the young uh, niece, not young, she's in her 50s, I think. He says, listen, I've got to tell you the truth. I am a specialist. and I, I really must have the papers, the, the letters from the poet to your your <clears throat> aunt. And the woman says, um, the niece says, well, if you, you can have them if you marry me. Well, the man becomes completely unhinged, leaves the house. It was a horrible idea. <clears throat> he walks up and down in the Lido all day, comes back at night, and he thinks, well, it's worth it what i mean i really must have those letters so in the morning he goes to see her in her study in her in her in her parlor i mean and he says i've changed my mind i will marry you for the papers and she said well it's too late i've done the great thing i've yeah. burned them everywhere the great thing He things. does call it that um, <laughs> yeah.
0: he speaks of his death henry james does as the um,
1: distinguished
0: the distinguished thing, the distinguished thing.
1: Yeah. In yeah. fact, I, I thought for a while he had said it, the great thing, but no, no, I looked it up. It is the distinguished thing. Ah, the yeah. di- I have a distinguished thing. Uh-huh. Boom, Death.
0: Those are his last words. Yes. Uh, supposedly. Yeah. And these are not my last words, but we take a temporary pause as we listen to some other words, and then we return to John Berent, drawing from his fascinating new book, uh, The City of Falling Angels. I can testify, before we stop for those commercials, that it is utterly readable and uh, completely enthralling as was your prior book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And back to some other characters, including another American lady who lived for a long time, died at the age of 101, just a few days, I think, before you got to Venice. Right. And she also had a connection with a famous poet. Right. All to be disclosed as we continue after this. Our guest tonight, during the first hour, plus ten minutes into the second hour, is John Berent, uh, the former editor of New York Magazine, former columnist, for Esquire magazine, author of the best-selling book of a few years ago, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and of the new, inevitably best-selling book, as I predict it will be, it must already be up on the New York Times list. This coming Sunday. Uh, the City of Falling Angels. That city is the uh, is Venice, of course. Uh, that other American who lived for so many years in Venice and lived there with her otherwise married. Uh, companion? Ezra Pound. was Ezra, That yeah. companion was Ezra Pound, and the lady is Olga Rudge. Who was she exactly?
1: Olga Rudge was born in Youngstown, Ohio in, I believe, 1895. When she was just a few months old, her mother moved to Europe and she went with her. So, uh, she really was American by birth, but mm-hmm. not by training. Um, she lived with Ezra Pound in a little cottage in Venice for 50 years while he was married, spent half his time with his wife and half his time with Olga Rudge. Olga Rudge was a quite a formidable person in her own right, a, a musicologist. She was a concert violinist. She unearthed many of the Vivaldo concerti that uh, had, had not been heard before, mm-hmm. uh, or at least hadn't been heard for 300 years. She found them and resurrected them, Transcribe them, and uh, in other I words... I was Venetian.
0: was Venetian himself. Yes, yes, He was the music master at sort of a girl school in Venice.
1: Yes, but also the, a church, it uh, escapes me the name of it, right right near the yeah. uh, the, the St. Mark's Basin. Um, but the the interesting thing about, for me anyway, the story of Ezra Pound and Old Garage, was that how the parallel between the two of them and the story we were talking about before the break the Aspern papers. There you had an old lady <clears throat> who was uh, the former mistress of a long dead American poet named Henry Aspern. It was the fictional. And, the, and she lived in Venice and somebody wanted her papers. Okay. Here we have Olga Rudge, the former mistress of, of at that time that I was there, the long dead uh, American poet, Ezra Pound.
0: It should be noted, for some who don't know the history of American poetry, that he was not only in some ways a very significant poet, but he was also a traitor to this country and uh, broadcast for the fascists from Rome during World War II and when uh, we conquered and we apprehended him and he was taken to Washington where instead of putting him on trial, a trial that could have taken his life, in consequence he was declared insane and thrown into a mental hospital where I think he spent some how many years was it? Either
1: 11 or 13 years, yeah. one of the two. And <clears throat> St. Elizabeth's. St. Elizabeth's, exactly. And uh, he then was freed and went back to live in uh, Where Venice. he
0: spent the rest of his life, back in that
1: little stone cottage with Olga Rudge. Right. And he uh, died in 72, 1972, and she went on to live another uh, 24 mm-hmm. years. Uh, and she, but when she was in her 90s, she was uh, befriended by a, a young American a Anglo-American couple. He was English, yeah. she was American, and they talked her into signing over her house and five trunks of papers to the, old, to the Ezra Pound Foundation, which uh, they set up in Ohio. The the wife of this couple. Would How be, did they
0: justify setting it up in Ohio? Uh,
1: I know I have no idea why it was set up in Ohio. And the uh, their name is Ryland, isn't it? Rylands, yes. Yeah. Well, I can use names. Uh, Philip and Jane Rylands. Jane Rylands uh, being the wife of, of Philip Rylands, and he was the director of the and is the director of the Peggy Guggenheim Collection in Venice. She uh, taught English classes at the uh, at the um, air base in Aviano, an American air base outside Venice. At any rate, she more or less is the one who, who spearheaded this, formed the Ezra Pound Foundation in Ohio, where she, Mrs. Rylands, Jane Rylands, was born and came from. Uh, there were three officers of the Ezra Pound Foundation. Olga Rudge was to be the president, but she's in her 90s, mind you. Jane Rylands, the vice president, and a lawyer in Cleveland, the the secretary. Of those three, any two could outrule, uh, overrule the third, which meant that... Uh, the two, Jane Whitelands and the lawyer, her friend, in, in Ohio, could uh, overrule anything that Il- Olga Rudge wanted to do. Olga Rudge signed over her house, for gave it for nothing to this foundation, tax-exam foundation, and sold her papers, five trunks of valuable papers, for $7,000. Certain individual papers within that cash would have been worth 7000 in their own rights. Sure. This was all mm-hmm. done without the knowledge of Ezra Pound and Olga Rudge's daughter, Mary de uh, so here we had the Ezra Pound Foundation being formed and these two contracts being signed by a woman in her 90s who was rather forgetful, to put it mildly. Was this
0: just kind of ill-advised and poorly formulated, or was this uh, a confidence racket operation worked on uh, a lady in senescent decline? Uh,
1: the Rylands wouldn't talk to me, but it's all very suspicious. And uh, this woman, Olga Rudge, did want to have some kind of foundation set up to perpetuate the memory of Ezra Pound and his work. That is true. She knew that she was doing Mm -hmm. this. But she would forget who she was dealing with. She would forget who people... But she would have a conversation with somebody. The person left the room, she'd say, now, who was that?
0: Was Peggy Guggenheim, and we haven't really defined her, but... I would ask you to do so in just a moment. Was she more compass mentis when she signed over a good portion of her vast art collection?
1: Yeah. The same people? She was. No, she didn't sign it to them. She signed it to her uncle's museum in New York. But somehow they got their hands on. They wormed their way. Yes, the Rylands did. Befriend Peggy, no. and became involved with her life the same way they later did with uh, Olga Rudge. But with Peggy, uh, they became friendly. And when Peggy died. Philip Rylands was there tending to things. They'd involved themselves in her life to the extent that uh, when the officers of the, uh, of the directors of the uh, museum in New York came to take over, there was Philip Rylands at the house. He was a, uh, a Renaissance scholar and had nothing to do with modern art, which is what Peggy Guggenheim had collected. And he was on the scene. They needed somebody to, you know, to take care of, to answer the doorbell, sort of, and to take care of things, and he, he was in position. They had worked it so that he would be in position yeah. to take over. It wasn't any confidence involved, and nothing underhanded at all, but just the seizing of opportunity when it arose.
0: Somebody says to you about them as a couple that they are rather, what's the term he coined, geriophilic?
1: Uh, ger- selective gerontophilia. Gerontophilia. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they tended, tended to gravitate to old people. Now, this interesting, interesting thing about old people in Venice, particularly if they're not Italian, In Venice, for old people, is a very difficult place to live because you have to walk everywhere. You have to climb over bridges to go buy a a bottle of milk. No automobiles. No automobiles. You can take a vaporetto, but you've got to walk to the vaporetto. To get to the vaporetto, you've got to go over two or three bridges. The vaporetto is a boat. A boat. uh, Yes, a bus, a water bus. Well, that means you really are in a bad way, and if anyone can befriend you, and and help you well. The Rylands were the kind of people who befriended older people and helped them. Truly did help them.
0: Where uh, are they now?
1: They're in Venice. They're in uh, Venice. Philip Rylands is the director of the Peggy Guggenheim Museum, and his wife uh, lives in Venice. And uh, uh, just when I was finished writing, my she uh, she actually uh, Jane Rylands wrote a book of short stories about Venice, and she has another one coming out the fall. In the fall.
0: Rylands is the director of. Which Guggenheim—the one in New York or the one one in Venice? The one in
1: Venice. The, it's it's a palace that Peggy Guggenheim lived in and yeah. had her museum in. Her museum was her collection of, of modern art.
0: She was a great patron of the a arts and patron. funded all sorts of modern painters. Did
1: yes, she? Ja- yes, Jackson Pollock being one of them. Yeah. And uh, but she had great great works of modern art in her gallery, uh, and it was it, she finally left it to her uncle's museum mm-hmm. in New York, the great uh, Guggenheim. And the Rylands were in position to, Philip Ry- Rylands was simply in position, and he found himself uh, at first the the administrator, and now he's the, uh, the, the director of this small but very famous little gallery. Have
0: and Mr. and <laughs> Mrs. Rylands responded yet to this book of yours?
1: Uh, not to me, they have not. I haven't heard from them. But, of course, they didn't respond to me when I tried to talk to them. In fact, they understood what I was going to write about. I was going to write about the Ezra Pound Foundation and Mm. the quiet little scandal that it had caused. Uh, They refused to talk to me. And when I called Philip Rylance to talk to him and ask him to be interviewed, he said, we have no interest in talking to you. Uh, And I said, well, I just want to write about the Ezra Pound Foundation. I know nothing about the Ezra Pound Foundation. And I said, well, all right, then uh, if you won't talk, then I will at least send you... uh, questions, so that you'll have an opportunity to, to respond. He said, I will I will view the submission of questions as an invasion. And it's all gossip anyway, he said. I said, no, it's not gossip. He said, then what is it? I said, it's history. Because when you involve yourself with the lives of famous people, as you and Jane seem to like to do, you are part of their story.
0: You're a pretty tough customer.
1: I said it as nicely as I could. Yeah, well.
0: <laughs> But they didn't budge. No. I suspect somehow you're going to hear from them, or from a lawyer representative?
1: <laughs> I might hear from a lawyer. I doubt that it would uh, serve them any purpose because this has gone been gone over very, very uh, carefully. Been vetted, layers. as they say. Been vetted. But you see, also, with all my training in magazines, I know how not to write libel. Mm-hmm. Because with magazines, your, every single word that goes into a monthly magazine is checked by a lawyer. So for all those years, I know what doesn't fly. I know what you cannot say, and I didn't say any of those things you cannot say. And for that one chapter, which is the longest chapter in the book, the Last Canto. Yeah. Uh, I mm. I contacted all the people I quoted who talked mm. about Jane Rylands and her husband and the Ezra Pound Foundation, and I said, this is what I've quoted of what you told me. I'm sending you the mm. a, a page with all of your words on it. I would like you to sign, it, sign this and say that you are quoted accurately and what you told me was true. And I got mm. a lot of people to sign.
0: So far, all the Venetians we've been talking about are Americans or English. There are some Italian Venetians who show up here, who are really quite fascinating. There's the famous glassblower of Venice. We could talk about him. There's also a man who particularly interested me, uh, the poet Mario Stefani. And um, is that his nephew or his son, Niccolò Bernardi?
1: No, that was the man who left his his, his estate. Yeah. No relation whatsoever. And the the Which question was, what was the relation?
0: Exactly. We'll talk about some of those Italians in Venice. Uh, and we'll do that when we return directly to John Berent, author of the new book The City of Falling Angels. First this. We will try to work in a few phone calls, and we'll open the lines right now, because John Berent will be with us only till about 10 minutes after uh, 10 o'clock. So, uh, the lines are open. five nine one seven two double zero. the number, five nine one seventy two hundred 7200 For any question you want to raise about uh, Savannah and the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and about This new one, which most of you have not yet read, but I predict many of you will be rushing to get your hands on it as quickly as possible. It is titled, The City of Falling Angels, and um, it is published by Penguin Penguin Press. Press. By the way, we should explain the title. How does Venice become The City of Falling Angels?
1: Well, there was a sign posted outside the church uh, of Santa Maria della Salute in the 1970s when the buildings were in terrible shape. And it it read beware of falling angels because angels marble angels were falling off the pediments and the roof and it's fi- if you look at that church it's filled with you know these marble angel statues and there was a sign that said beware of falling angels and I thought that's perfect because falling angels is literally a reference to the decay of the buildings in Venice but it also has a metaphorical meaning.
0: Well, it's also yes, uh, Satan, Satan who. Uh... And as as beautifully treated by John Milton in Paradise
1: Lost, of course. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, people in Venice I met may think of themselves as angelic and doers of good, and they may not be. Yeah. So it has many meanings. Among that gallery of real Italians that I offered
0: <laughs> you before, choose one.
1: All right, the master glassblower of Venice, Archimede Seguso. Uh, as it happened, he lived, he's 87 years old, he lived within 30 feet of the of the Fenice Opera House. And the night the mm-hmm. Fenice Opera House burned, he sat at his bedroom window, refused to leave the house, watched the fire out the window. Uh, the, the policeman, the fireman pleaded with him, Maestro, you must leave your house. We're emptying all the houses around the Fenice. The fire is getting worse and worse and hotter and hotter. And we don't know if it'll spread. He looked out the window at the fire, and he had been looking at fires at the furnace for 76 years, blowing glass. He knew fire. He was also he had a nickname, the Wizard of Fire. He was looking at it, and the fire got over 100 degrees hot, and flames shot 150 feet into the air. It was the tallest thing in Venice that night. Uh, but he knew that we. He said, "We're not in any danger." He was looking out there figured the wind was going to blow the the flames in a certain direction not quite in their direction uh but it was remarkable because here is this man staring into the furnace of the Fenice, looking at the colors uh, because as various substances burned inside the Fenice, they they made purple green red yellow various colors of flames and at two o'clock the the fire was not really under control officially but he knew because he knew about fire. He knew that they were completely out of danger, and he announced this to his family, Family, and he went to bed. At 5 in the morning, as usual, even though he was 87, he got up and went to his glass-blowing factory on the island of Murano, right there, right off Venice, and he started uh, blowing glass, uh, glass uh, uh, bowls and vases with all the colors he saw that night swirling around, spiraling up, Around the the, the glass, uh, against a background of black, and it was his his depiction of the fire. And as the fire progressed, and it became dawn, and the and the flames were uh, disappeared, but there was smoke. You could see that the colors changed more to white, the smoke against pale a uh, dark blue, and then paler blue as as it became later uh, in the morning and well, toward five o'clock, and he. Uh, this was his uh, testimony about the fire, all in glass, all blown glass. And it's called the Fenice series, and there are about a hundred pieces that he did. He started the day after, barely a few hours after the fire was brought under control. Have they been kept together as a single collection? Well, it then developed <clears throat> that the two sons of Archimedes Seguso were at, at, uh, having a uh, a war, a dynastic struggle. They were the 23rd generation of Seguso. Glass isn't, it, isn't that wonderful? Amazing. From the 13th century. Uh-huh. And uh, one son split off and set up his own competing glass company uh-huh. and registered his father's name without telling anybody and declared his father mentally incompetent to run his company so that he could then, this brother who split off, he could sue his company without suing his father, but yet he's declared him mentally incompetent. Uh, Moronesi, the people of Murano, apparently fight with each other. Uh, families fight uh, amongst themselves. I don't know why. I figure it's probably because the glassblowers were sent to the island of Murano because of the danger of fire uh, in the 14th century, 13th century, I don't remember which. And they've been living together in such tight, close circumstances for so many centuries that they naturally bicker and fight. I suppose that's it. An
0: interesting character to whom you devote a chapter is, uh, what do we call him, uh, the captain or
1: the admiral or uh, what Mario title should we Mario, Cap- Capitano Mario, it was a man I simply saw uh, on various occasions. One time I was uh, in a Vaporetto water bus and we were coming to the dock and there was this conductor in a conductor's outfit waving gesticulating directing the driver of the of the uh, water bus to the dock which i thought was very strange because they they generally can, it's like parking a bus i mean it's, you don't need anybody to show you where to go but he was this marvelous figure of all smiles and people got off we got off the vaporetto and he was saluting us and people some of them said ah capitano mario well i thought it was very sweet and he was obviously glad to see us well a few days later i saw him again but he this time was a policeman And another day, he was a a gas meter man, always in a uniform, a naval officer, whatever. So finally, I talked to him, and he was one of those fantasts who pictures himself playing various roles. But this, you see, is one of the aspects of Venice. He's an exaggeration of it. But Venice is, as so many people have said or noticed, it looks like a, a painted stage set. In fact, it does. And you, and it has an effect on the people who live there. They imagine themselves in some great drama. Sometimes they go a little further and imagine themselves as people they are not.
0: Somebody tells you when you've just uh, arrived, uh, the line is something like, all Venetians always lie.
1: Yes. Uh, there was a man Doesn't sound
0: like an Aristotelian syllogism All Venetians always lie Said so and so the Venetian <laughs> Is he telling the truth?
1: Yes, but later on He said that I was lying When I told you that But <laughs> he said Venetians play, are all acting All Venetians yeah. are acting We play roles And the roles change yeah. And he said We walk over But he said to me How do you see a bridge? Do you see a bridge as an obstacle? And he said because we Venetians do not see bridges as obstacles. We see them as transitions. We, we go over them. As we go over them, our role changes from one reality to another reality, like changes in scenery in a theater. Um, and he said, you know, uh, uh, a trompe l'oeil painting is, is, is uh, looks like real life, but it's not real life. It's reality once removed. Then what, then, is a trompe l'oeil painting seen in a mirror? reality twice removed. Mm-hmm. He said sunlight reflects off a canal, through a window onto a ceiling, from the ceiling onto a glass, from the glass to a vase, the vase to a bowl. Which is the real sunlight? Which is the real reflection? It's not an easy answer because the truth can change. Yeah. I can change. You can change. It's so, almost as if he was talking about Mario Morrow, Mario, Mario, and I don't even know if he knows him. Speaking of the truth, uh, a great question
0: requiring solution is raised towards the beginning of your book, namely who burned down the fenice opera house should be pointed out that the fenice was the place where i think you tell us that was it was at four or five of verdi's operas five. were were premiered
1: there <laughs> yes they were commissioned commissioned by, by the fenice and the fenice was the was where they debuted and also they they kept the signed uh, scores the only opera house ever to do that
0: so the basic question uh is who done it
1: Yes, and the great thing in Venice is you don't always know. Here's what happened. Two young men were convicted of arson. At first, it wasn't certain whether it was uh, arson or neglect and uh, an accident, negligence and an accident, but it was arson, and they were convicted. Mm -hmm. Upon the sentencing, the judge, presiding judge, said, these two young men were not alone. There were others in the shadows for whom burning the finice meant a lot of money, enough so that it was worth it. And he said, nell'ombre, others in the shadows. He didn't say who they were. I went to see the judge afterwards and I said, this is astonishing. I've, I've never heard of anything like this. No no evidence has been offered about someone paying these young men to burn the Fenice. He said, yes, I know. There's no evidence and the, the prosecutor hasn't been able to get any, but we, uh, I and the other judges feel that this was probably the case, um, that someone did pay them to do it in order to set up a a means for them whoever paid for it to make money in rebuilding the furniture we don't know who they are though I went to see the prosecutor he felt the same way he said we don't have evidence furthermore the one person we think was a link to the money is the father of one of these young men and he has just died of cancer so that's the end of that so the next day i was talking to an artist a venetian artist i said how, uh, how you know disquieting you we don't know who, who what happened it was the mystery and he says, on the contrary it's the perfect ending for venetians we don't need to know we don't want to know you still a wonderful look what you have you have a dramatic fire that nearly burned down all of venice we lost the wonderful fenice it was a tragedy very emotional then you have the unseemly rush to make the money to rebuild it and you have a, a trial for of arson, for arson, a very dramatic trial, and you have a conviction. Two boys are convicted. One flees; we don't know where he is. One goes to jail, and then we hear that there's a mystery. There are L'Altre nell'Ombra, other people in the shadows who paid for it—a great mystery. What more can you ask? He said, yeah. "Venetians love uh, that kind of ending. We can live with it forever because it enables us to make any ending we want, make up any ending." We and want. that's where the story rests, is it? Yes, that's exactly. Yeah.
0: Meanwhile, they've rebuilt the they
1: rebuilt the the Venetia. House. Yes. And that in itself was a story, because that was no simple task. Mm. <clears throat> the first company that was awarded the contract after competitive bidding starts in eight months later. Uh, the losers have gone to court to say it was unfair, it was fraud. It was... And the court says, you're right, the winners shouldn't have won. Stop stop work immediately. And so the winners, who are eight months into rebuilding the furniture, have to pull back. And a second group takes over, after many delays, of course and then the second group bogs down they fall way behind they become broke um it was it, it you know it's almost slapstick and the, the mayor fires them so now we've had two starts and we're no go at this point point. and two different designs also i mean mm-hmm. it is a replica of what was there but nevertheless the structure is somewhat different so the, the, just such a hash such a mesh Mess. so what happens a third group gets the job they come in but this is the group that was renovating the Fenice when it burned
0: Venice is clearly your sort of town.
1: Oh, I love it. No, I love it. All <laughs> the craziness. Yes.
0: Uh, we're going to pause right now and work on a few calls directly after some commercials. 591 7200 is the number. The lines are open at this instant. And there's room on the board if you want to call to raise a question or for a thought, share a memory of Venice, or for that matter of Savannah, give us a call on 591 7200. Our guest uh, is, and for the next uh, 20 minutes, will continue to be John Barrent author of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and now the book that we've been drawing from, The City of Falling Angels, that city, of course, being Venice. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. Some lines are taken. Some are still available. If you want to join in this conversation, uh, give us a call quickly. And here, I am just now informed, is an old friend of mine who was on this program only last week, Richard Stern. Good evening. Hi, I'm I was telling John that um, you... Uh, since he writes about Rudge and about Ezra Pound, that you actually uh, got to see them and they allowed you into their circle, if only briefly, in Venice. What year was that?
2: Uh, Well, I was a Fulbright professor in 62, 63, and I met Pound shortly after his birthday party. and, uh, And I used to go to see him once a week. And by that time, I was a close friend of Joan Fitzgerald, whom I think, uh, John Barents
1: knows sculptress. and, Marvelous uh, uh,
2: and uh, i I went back in sixty five i I see Olga, and I'm a friend of Mary's, their daughter, so it's uh, it's it's nice hearing them talked about and written about. I wondered if uh, John barrons knew say uh, Ivan Chich uh, or other people who who knew the pounds uh, knew Olga and new Mary and if he I haven't yet read the book I'm a fan of the Savannah book my wife's from Savannah her living room was furnished by uh, Jim I think was his Jim name was it, yeah. but at any rate <laughs> uh, at any rate uh, on the Venice thing did what, is there a, an attempt to give a portrait of, of the old uh, fellow and if so does it derive from people like uh, Gianfranco Ivancic who, who's uh, the brother of the Adriana right. of Hemingway's novel, and uh, uh,
0: Hemingway's novel across the river and into the trees. Yeah, uh, not a very
2: Hemingway. good novel, but yeah. uh, John Franklin. But
0: the Italian countess that the older the, character falls in love with. Yeah, yeah.
1: I did meet Ivančič once, but uh, my story was not. I. I I went over the, um, I recount the story of Pound, but really it's a story that takes place after his death uh, with Olga Rudge and her papers, and papers uh, involved, of course, Pound uh, very heavily, and their uh, correspondence over 50 years was included in these papers that were in the trunks that were... That she sold for right. his pittance uh, and other papers as well but in, in telling that story I, I go I, I, I do in the book explain all about Pound and Pound and, and Olga Rudge and Pound's wife also uh, Dorothy right. Shakespeare but it is not so much a story about Pound although he's very present in the whole thing right. uh, but, a, but a story about uh, his daughter and his uh, mistress
2: he was uh, quite, when I knew him the fire had uh, subsided and uh Oddly enough, though I was expecting a rather semi-mad person and somebody frothing at the mouth, uh, he was uh, exceptionally sane, uh, listened to everything he said, and gave surprising uh, answers to... He he was able to talk about his life and about his literary life. Richard,
0: you did discuss with him his uh, anti-Semitism, didn't you?
2: No, I didn't. Never directly confronted that? No, there was... Uh Olga went out of her way to talk about the books that he'd dedicated to uh, Zukavsky's uh, and so on. I mean, th- there was an effort on her part.
0: Yeah, I see. But it's no, he knew,
2: however, he was clear to him that I was Jewish, and, uh, and there was only one occasion when he betrayed anything uncertain. We were going, my wife and I were going over to Peggy Guggenheim's for dinner, and I'd I'd said something that she'd said about him, and he got angry. He happened to be reading a novel of mine on the table, and he sort of brushed at it, and he said, I've been wondering about the amount of fiction in what you say. And, uh, and he was distressed by it. Uh, Olga and Joan Fitzgerald left the room, and I went over. I was angry. I was not even going to say goodbye. He drew me to his bed. And I said, I'm sorry, so much social conversation is full of persiflage and exaggeration. I'm sorry to have distressed you. He pulled me down to within inches of him, and he said, no, I've been wrong, wrong, wrong. I've strayed off the path. You don't know what it's like. And when the memory goes, it's a terrible thing. It was an extraordinary moving conversation in which... This old lion, this leonine yeah. person, confronted me and was more or less uh, apologizing and uh, And so I left. But uh, no, he was uh, they were remarkable people, and the daughter mary is is herself a remarkable yes. person. And anyway, I'm delighted that John Behrens has written what's clearly a charming book about the town and about at least the ashes of the pound rush You
0: you, you two uh, people should get together. I'm sorry that uh, it didn't occur to me Uh, sooner, but, uh, Nord...
2: Well, I'll send send, uh, John a copy of Stitch, the novel that I wrote about town, if if you get an address from him.
0: We'll we'll provide that to you.
2: Okay. give it to you tomorrow. Okay. Thank
0: you very much, Richard. Pleasure.
2: Good oh, night for now.
0: Thank you. Uh, he's one of my best friends at the university where both of us have taught for many, many years. Uh, we're going to pause shortly and go to uh, the newsroom and then work in a few more phone calls. five nine one seven two double zero is the number, and you can get to us by just ringing up those uh, digits quickly. Or if you'd rather communicate via email, the email address is as ever, extension 720 at tribune.com extension 720 at tribune t-r-i-b-u-n-e dot com or 591 7200 we return directly after this update from the newsroom we are talking with John Berent author of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and now The City of Falling Angels that's just published by Penguin Press we're taking your phone calls now 591 7200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Yes, ma'am.
2: Yes, hi. My name is Susan, and Happy New Year. And I'm wondering if um, your guest could talk about the Jewish community in Venice, um, some of the highlights that that he estimates are from the past, and then also um, what is going on there in the Jewish community now and how they might celebrate Tov.
0: Very interesting questions. Uh, Ghetto, the, the word that we use, comes literally from... A neighborhood in Venice. It's that's
1: the it. first use of the word ghetto. Mm. Uh, it was an iron uh, forge uh, manufacturing place, and it, it comes from that. I'm not exactly clear yeah. of the derivation of the word, but <clears throat> the Jews were were compelled to live inside this uh, mm. ghetto, and they were crowded in there. And the there are more floors; they had to build up; they couldn't build out. The more floors in the buildings in the ghetto in the new and the old ghetto uh which are together side by side uh, than any any other buildings in in venice it's a mm. it's a very close-knit community and it's it's a marvelous place to visit uh, uh the synagogues there particularly and uh there is also uh, uh, there is also a, uh, a sculpture on a wall uh, by um uh blattas it is really terrific, and it, and it's uh, about the um, the Holocaust. Seven pieces on the wall in a sort of frieze motif. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jewish community there is is very uh, very integrated into the community, and in fact, uh, I don't know about the celebration of Jewish services this year. I'm not uh, aware of all that, but I, but they are they're quite mm-hmm. uh, active and part of the community.
0: It is worth remembering, of course, that Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice is indeed set in Venice, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Mike Nussbaum uh, is playing Shylock in the production now at the Shakespeare Theatre here in Chicago, and was our guest on this program only a few weeks ago.
2: Have you seen the play yet? I've
0: not been able to get there, but uh, Nussbaum did uh, w- uh, one of the major soliloquies for us that night here on the program. He did it very movingly, mm-hmm. and there's another film there was a film, rather, uh, recently with, yes. what's his name? Al Pacino. Al, Pacino. Al Pacino. It
1: was filmed in Luxembourg, unfortunately. Oh, it wasn't done I in mean, Venice. I couldn't believe oh, it. Oh, I'm amazed to hear that. Yeah. It was... How I, curious. I don't know, I understand why. It's cheaper. It's terrible to do Well, like we see a bridge that looks like a Venetian bridge. Well, you can make one, but... Maybe that. they shot one scene in Venice, but uh, the movie was shot up in uh, Luxembourg. <laughs> I see. Right.
0: Well, ma'am, thank you for the call. Thank you
2: very and much.
0: La Shalatova. Shalatova.
2: And la
0: shala tova. And. We've got just a few minutes left. What characters have we left out that we should get on record in this conversation?
1: Oh, uh, possibly the Rat Man of Treviso. Yes, indeed. Someone I simply encountered at dinner one night. He <laughs> said, "I'm a world famous chef, and uh, my specialty." I said, well, "What is your specialty?" He said, "Rat poison. I make I make the world's best selling rat poison. I have thirty percent of the rat poison international rat poison market." I said, "What's your What's your your trick?" Uh, and he said. Uh, well, all my competitors study people. I'm sorry, study rats. Yeah. I study people. Sorry, I had it wrong.
0: The people who feed the rats.
1: Well, of course, because the rats uh, are used to the cuisine of the uh, place they live in. So he said, you know, what you have on your plate right now, the vine- the fegatoa alla Veneziana would be... Very tasty for uh, Venetian rats, but a German rat wouldn't touch it. So, because they're used to Wurstel and uh, Wiener Schnitzel. And so, for my German rat poison, I, I have 40% pork fat. Yeah. My French rat poison has butter in it. My American rat poison has margarine and popcorn and granola and uh, the things that uh, are popular in. Is
0: all world. of this true? The-
1: Absolutely. Did true. you
0: test it out or you check it out? I didn't
1: test it, but you can go to his website, yeah. and there it is. He explains what's uh-huh. in it. Uh, I said, what do you have in your Italian uh, rat poison? He said, well, I have pasta and honey and uh, Nutella. Nutella. And he said, rats love Nutella. And he said, I, uh, I buy what, tons of it. He
0: what said, is I, Nutella?
1: Uh, Nutella is this sort of um, chocolatey, peanutty, chocolatey uh, uh, spread. Uh-huh. Very delicious. It's soft. It's people love it. Very sweet. And uh, he said, uh, I sell tons. Of, I buy tons of it. And he said, I offered. Uh, I called the Nutella company, and I said I'd be happy to uh, to uh, give them a a, a a boost on television. To you know, mm-hmm. uh, and they said, oh, please don't ever mention it. Don't tell anybody. So, uh, but and, and he said, if when people go on diets, the rats go on diets as well. He said, so I maintain 30 uh, research stations around the world to make sure that my poisons are updated and uh, they're in sync with the latest trends in human dining. So, uh, And he goes on and on. He's fascinating on the subject of rats.
0: Well, Venice afforded you a great gallery of eccentrics, or at least of unusual people, to say the least. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. There was a man, for instance, uh, one of the Curtis family who owned a the Palazzo Barbaro for uh, over a hundred years, and he's a member of the fourth generation. He has a huge um, apartment in the Barbaro, and he invited me to come for liftoff. I didn't know what he was talking about. Well, his his apartment was uh, not decorated at all. It was all painted white, and the only illumination were bulbs, those cobalt blue bulbs you see on the uh, along uh, airport runways. And what he meant by liftoff was, we sat there on the floor, there was very little furniture, this huge apartment in the Palazzo on the Grand Canal, but anyway, he had a boom box, and he said, "We, we can you can have your choice, We we'll listen to Apollo 5, 6, 7, 10, 12, whatever you like. Well, we listened to Apollo 15. It was the blast-off and the landing on the moon, and the palace shook when, he, uh, when, the, when the rockets took off, and uh, this was all very confusing, but this was uh, his, his act.
0: Was it his actor, or did he have a real eschatological uh, conviction that somehow
1: uh, he, this is no, the way he, the
0: world was going to end?
1: No, he he was in t- touch with the planet Mars. He wanted to send all of the nuclear codes uh, mm-hmm. to the planet Mars so that no one could use them and blow up the world, and uh, he's dedicated to this. He's very serious about it, and and I've written about this in my in the book, and uh, I got a letter from him the other day thanking me for, for telling it the way it was, and, uh, you know, but this is part of, the, of the, the, the act that goes on and on, the roles people play.
0: We've been told uh, uh, stories warning about this for years that Venice is in real ecological trouble. That uh, It may be sinking into the lagoons, uh, that uh, it faces yet other problems concerning the general decay and dissolution of its structures.
1: The main problem, really, is that the the uh, the sea level is rising. Mm-hmm. Venice has stopped sinking pretty much because it, they were pulling, they were pumping water out from under it for drinking purposes, and they realized they were sucking uh, Venice into the muck. So they pumped the water back in under it, and it brought it back up about an inch. They they pulled it down about ten inches. Now, however, what's happening is the sea level is rising. So what they're doing in Venice is mm-hmm. raising the level of the ground. Uh, by a few inches, by five inches right now. But they've been doing this for centuries. How do you do that? <clears throat> you simply uh, build some more, you put, lay a lever, level of brick or whatever, mm-hmm. or marble on top of what's there. They really do it along the canals, uh, raise the level of the edges of the canals.
0: It's like just, building levees.
1: Yes, miles, yes. and well, but you can't tell. It's just so. slightly raised. Uh, but they've been doing this in Venice for centuries. You dig down in, in uh, Piazza San Marco, uh, in St. Mark's Place Square, and you see levels of pavement going down, 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 six feet. So, you know, 1,500 years ago, the, the uh, ground level was well below what it is now, but as the oceans r- rose and the, the city sank a bit with subsidence, uh, they had to build up the, 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 the sidewalks and the, and the um, you know, the squares.
0: We get predictions that real global warming may inundate New York with the melting of the ice caps uh, water levels may rise so that Manhattan will be below sea level. Only parts of it. That would certainly be a problem for Venice.
1: Would oh, it well, no? Venice would be gone by then. But if they build the, the dikes uh, that they are planning to build, maybe that would uh, solve the matter. Uh, but there are complications involving that as well. And what they do best in Venice is argue. They've been arguing about this, this plan to build the movable dikes for uh, uh, 25 years. Been on the drawing boards for all that time. And there are arguments for it, against it, but the arguments are the main thing right now.
0: I thought Venice was a little bit larger than I learned it is from you. You say that the population is just about 70,000.
1: It's now 63. So
0: that's, it's a, that's one neighborhood of Chicago, exactly. a large one.
1: But also, it's smaller than you think it is. It's really yeah. not much bigger than Central Park, mm-hmm. when you think of the part of it that you go into. Uh, the whole thing is, is not much bigger than twice the size of Central Park, which is not big at all. So even though you get lost constantly in Venice because the, all the streets wind around and there's dead ends and you don't know where you are, but that's part of the thrill of being in Venice, getting okay. lost. You should never worry about it.
0: John, I thank you for joining us tonight. It's been, to me, an uh, utterly fascinating uh, conversation, as the book indeed fascinates me. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. I may well finish it tonight. That book is The City of Falling Angels by John Berent, published by uh, the Penguin Press,